Uh, we're in the middle of a series on the Gospel of Matthew. Could be on my end, guys. No, come on. There you go. And uh, we're going to continue in that series this morning. If you have your Bibles and you'd like to turn to Matthew chapter 4, you can. If you don't have a Bible uh, and you want to take one of the few Bibles, you can. I'm in the ESV there in NIV, so that might be a little problematic. Otherwise, it'll be on the screen behind me. Uh, again, we've been looking at the life of Jesus as he is presented to us by Matthew in his gospel in his coming in the early days or the beginnings of Jesus. Beginning next week, we're going to go into kind of a second phase of, of, this, of this, um, the way that Matthew presents and talking about Jesus' kingdom. So in many ways, this morning, we are looking at a passage that's going to kind of look back and it's going to look forward to the teaching that we're going to find in the Sermon on the Mount starting next week. So uh, there's going to be some major kind of big idea themes that are going to help us for the rest of our study of the Gospel of Matthew. And so today may feel a little big picture, uh, but that's okay because it's going to help us. That framework is going to help us to uh, come to the Gospel of Matthew. So let's read the scripture together from Matthew 4, verses 12 through 25. You follow along with me. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he left Nazareth, he went up and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in the darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and and shadow of death on them a light has dawned. Verse 17. From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all sick. Those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those pressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. This is God's Word. I'm just going to transfer over to this microphone. How about that? Now, as we look at. There we go. Now i got to stop yelling. As we look at this passage of Scripture, two themes that stand out, especially if you look in verse 17, which really verse 17 you could say is maybe Matthew's thesis statement for the entire gospel of what he wants us to come to see to be true of Jesus. So two themes that are very important for Matthew. And first, the theme of the coming kingdom, that Jesus' arrivals or signals, Jesus' arrival signals the arrival of the long-awaited kingdom of God. This is Matthew's gospel, okay? Matthew's gospel is that his good news is that Jesus is the son of David, 
that he is the king that has been promised, that has been long waited for. And he is bringing with him a new world order of righteousness and justice and peace. I mean, this is the hope of God's people as they suffered under the cruel oppression of Rome. And it is our hope now, too, as we wait for his second coming, because there is so much about our world that is still out of whack. One million children aborted every year just in our country alone. I mean, just just begin to look at the world and you'll see there's so many ways that sin and death still reign. But what Matthew's trying to show us is, is that Jesus is the king who can make everything right and Though we wait for him to come again to consummate his work, even now, right now, in the day-to-day aspects of our lives, the kingdom of God has come and we can enter into it. We can live in it. Jesus has made it accessible to us through his life, death, and resurrection. And so even though we live in the present age characterized by sin and selfishness and violence and oppression... We can live right now in the age to come, which will be characterized by justice and righteousness and peace and love. And so I've said it this way before, I think the goal of the church is not that one day we will get to leave earth to go off into heaven to float on clouds and play harps for eternity. The goal is that we would work to bring heaven to earth. Now, second theme, repentance And what Matthew's trying to show us here is that this happens only as we repent, as we turn away from all the ways we have always known to live and turn to Jesus to learn from him how to live in God's kingdom. And this is the second great theme of Matthew to this point and will continue to be so as we look at this book. Um, John the Baptist came announcing the nearness of God's kingdom. Remember this and told them to get ready, told the people, you have to get ready. You have to make his way straight. You have to prepare for his coming. He came to help them, to baptize them for a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of their sins. He told them, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And so in Matthew 4, here at the outset of Jesus' public ministry, he has come to John to be baptized. The mantle of spiritual leadership is passing from John to Jesus. The Spirit of God, you remember, came down to rest upon Jesus at his baptism. The voice from heaven came saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And then we're told the spirit drove him out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil to have a showdown with evil. And now he has returned triumphant and is ready to embark upon the journey that will ultimately lead him to his death upon a cross for the sins of the world. And yet here at the beginning of his public ministry, Jesus is providing a summary statement. Of what all of his ministry is going to be about. And you see it there in verse 17. He began to preach. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so this morning. Just two points. And you'll see them in your outline. Uh, Two points I want to make. Two things I want to talk about. The first being the coming kingdom. What is it? What happens when it comes? Who does it come to? All these kinds of things. The coming kingdom. And then secondly. How do you enter it? The kingdom is coming. But how do you enter it? And so those are the two points that I want to look at this morning together as we walk through this passage of Scripture, okay? So let's just begin by talking then about the coming kingdom. What is the kingdom of God? What is a kingdom? Because this is a a hard concept for us to understand. The Greek word translated kingdom is the word basilie, which means royalty or royal power or sovereignty. It means or refers to God's imperial rule in Jesus Christ. 
Now, I realize the concept can be a little obtuse, and unfortunately so can I. So let me offer you a definition as best I can, okay? Dallas Willard, who's a professor at the University of Southern California, defines it this way. He says, a kingdom is the range of your effective will. It is where you have say, where your word is obeyed, where you have control over what happens. That's your kingdom, the range of your effective will. And I started to try to think of cultural parallels, and there are very few, but think about this. When you start a business or if you just want to, you know, advertise yourself, I suppose, and you decide you're going to get on the web and you're going to begin, you're going to have a website, the first thing you have to do if you're going to have a website is you have to go to somebody and you have to register for a domain, right? And however that works out in cyberspace, I'm not really sure. What, that do, what a domain is, is that word is saying that you are purchasing a space where you can create a kingdom. Where what you want to be on the web, web is there, where your words can be published, where, where you have complete, autonomous, sovereign control over whatever that thing is. That's a domain. That's a kingdom. It's the range of your effective will. You know, when a baby screams and the parents come rushing in to feed it or to change it or whatever, that that's a kingdom. Now, we have a funny thing at our house where I have four kids. And so, you know, there's a very clear hierarchy of how these things work out. And there's this ongoing conversation about the bossiness that can, you know, attend to having a kingdom. And so daddy's the boss. And, you know, they pretty much get the idea that daddy's the boss. And some, but sometimes mommy's the boss. And we get confused about that and however all that works. But then, you know, so daddy's the boss of mommy. And mommy's the boss of everybody else. But then Canaan, who's the oldest, is the boss of the three younger ones. And then on down the line, Isaac's the boss of the two. And then Abby's the boss of Sarah, which she's very pleased with. And then Sarah is the baby, so she's the boss of nobody. Except really the way it works in the family, she's the boss of everybody. Somehow that happens that way. You know, and so we we have these conversations around the dinner table a lot. And I think I told this story before, but not long ago, uh, we're having a conversation. And and Isaac, who is my second, is... uh, harassing his younger sister Abigail, saying, Abby, you're just, you're being bossy. Stop it. And Abby turns to <laughs> to Ashley and says, Mommy, what does bossy mean? And Ashley uh, says, Abby, when you're bossy, it means you're always telling everybody else what to do. Abby turns and says, Mommy, you're bossy. <laughs> right? Do you hear that? You, you see this? So, so what I'm, what I'm trying, I'm just trying in a very funny way to get you to see that we, we interact with the reality of kingdom all the time. Uh, that this is something we're all familiar with. John Calvin said it this way. He said, every, every man flatters himself and carries a kingdom in his breast. What's he mean? He, he, he means we all fancy ourselves kings and queens. We want more than anything else in all of the world, that others would bow down to us and serve us. We want to be in control. We want to be in charge to have others bend their will to our will. The newborn baby comes out of the womb this way. But it's also true that we've been created to be kings and queens, that we are made in God's image to rule, to have dominion. So it's something we're made for. In other words, it's part of our design, this idea of kingdom. Now, apply this to God, okay? And let's just talk through this for just a minute. There's a sense in which Jesus, as he comes proclaiming the kingdom come, there is a sense in which Jesus is the king of the whole earth. So, for example, Daniel 4, 
And in Daniel 4, Nebuchadnezzar, who was the most powerful king of the day, said of the Lord God, His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. So there's a sense in which God is king. And at the same time, there are people, there are places, there are political entities, there are social structures, there are policies that are in conflict with God and his purposes in Jesus that do not bend their will to God's will. And so there are places, there are people, there are, there are political spheres and entities to which the kingdom of God must still come. And that's where Matthew's phrased. Do you see there in verse 17? He says it's the kingdom of heaven. That's unique to Matthew. Every, every other writer talks about the kingdom of God, but Matthew's terminology is it's the kingdom of heaven. And for Matthew, the kingdom is the inbreaking of the reign of God, which is perfect in heaven, into the personal, social, and political realities of the earth. It is heaven coming to infiltrate the sinful structures and policies and relationships on the earth. And later, Matthew will teach us to pray as Jesus taught him, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, he doesn't mean we're not praying God's kingdom into existence. It's already there. We're praying that it would come and that it would take over at all points on the personal, social, and political order where it's now excluded. You see that? So we've got to keep that tension in mind. And I want you to look and see. Jesus is coming. He's coming announcing the kingdom. This is what he came to do. He came to bring the kingdom of God to bear upon all of the personal and political and social structures where it is now excluded. And we're told first here, if you look, that he came preaching and teaching. He came preaching and teaching, verse 23, proclaiming and teaching and healing. So preaching and teaching. Jesus is coming and he's going to bring the kingdom to bear upon our world through the ministry of preaching and teaching. In Revelation 19, it's, one of, it's just this amazingly beautiful passage where Jesus is pictured as a conquering king riding out on a wide, white horse to subdue the nations of the earth. He's a conquering king who is riding out to subdue the nations. And John writes of him, and I quote from Revelation 19:15, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule over them. There's a sword coming out of his mouth. So he's a conquering king riding out on a white horse to strike down the nations, and his weapon is a sword coming out of his mouth, the spoken word, the preached gospel. Jesus comes to establish God's reign and rule, and he does it by establishing the supremacy of God's word. He comes preaching and teaching. And what we're going to see in Matthew is Matthew's very interested in Jesus' teaching ministry, more than any other gospel writer. In fact, starting next week, we're going to get into three chapters, and it's going to take us almost ten weeks to get through the first really big chunk of Jesus' teaching that Matthew provides for us, because he understands the way that Matthew is accomplishing the mission of bringing the kingdom is through the word of God, the gospel which is coming out of his mouth to strike down the nations. And so I think, and Matthew tells us later, we should listen to him. Amen? I mean, we should listen to him. But look here in verse 23 again. He not only comes preaching and teaching, but we're also told he comes healing. 
Matthew says he healed the diseases and the afflictions of the people, those who were sick, those who were oppressed by demons. He says epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them all. And so not only do we see significance in Jesus' teaching ministry, but we see great significance in Jesus' miracles as well. But for Matthew and for the gospel writers, the purpose of Jesus' miracles is not just the naked display of his power. We've really gotten it wrong. The purpose of Jesus' miracles is not the naked display and the fact of his power. The purpose of the miracles is to put on, to display the realities of the coming kingdom. They were, in many ways, parables of what happens in the kingdom. I mean, if you want to get a picture of what it looks like for the kingdom of God to come to earth, look at Jesus healing the crowds. You know, we think of miracles as spectacles, as suspensions of the natural order. But listen to this statement by Jürgen Moltmann, who's a German theologian. He says this. It's just this one sentence that's really profound to me. He says, Jesus' healings are the only natural things in a world that is unnatural, demonized, and wounded. See, God didn't make the world the way it is today. I mean, when God made the world, there was no hunger and starvation, no poverty or disease or death. Those things are unnatural. Death is not natural. Cancer is not natural. They are invasions of God's purposes for the world. And so the miracles are not suspensions of the natural order. They are restorations of the natural order. They put the broken world back together. And in the life and ministry of Jesus, as he casts out demons and heals diseases and raises the dead, the kingdom of God is coming to the earth. The rule and the reign of God are being realized in the lives, the social structures of the places that he walked and the people he taught. Now, all of this means this. What's happening here? What's happening here is Jesus is revealing in his preaching and his teaching and in the way he attacked the demons and cast them out of people and and touched people and brought them to wholeness. He's revealing what eternal life really is. Eternal life. He's teaching us about eternal life. I mean, the kingdom of God is about eternal life. It's about entering into eternal life. And again, the way we've understood this is sometimes skewed because when the bible talks about eternal life it doesn't mean kind of this thing that's out there that maybe after you die one day you'll get you know you'll get to experience forever and ever and it'll be great but what the bible teaches is that eternal life is the life of the future that has now pushed itself into the present through the work of jesus the kingdom of god has come it's near he says it's it's here it's it's right it's accessible to all who would repent and believe eternal life has been pushed from eternity into the present reality through the work of Jesus so that we can enter into it now. And in both his preaching and his teaching and his healing ministry, Jesus is putting on display the reality of that eternal life. He's establishing a new world order which is accessible to all who believe in him. And so Dallas Willard again, he says it this way. He says, Jesus offers himself as God's doorway into the life that is truly life. Listen to what he says. He says, I think we finally have to say that Jesus' enduring relevance is based on his historically proven ability to speak to, heal, and empower the human condition. He matters because of what he brought and still brings to ordinary human beings, living their ordinary lives and coping, with, coping daily with their surroundings. He promises wholeness for their lives. In sharing our weakness, he gives us strength 
and imparts through his companionship a life that has the quality of eternity. He comes to where we are and he brings us the life we hunger for. I mean, that's what's being revealed here. Eternal life has come and we can enter into it now. We don't have to wait for the day after we die. But it's already made accessible to us because the kingdom of God is coming. Now, there's one more thing that we have to deal with as we talk about the reality of the kingdom. And that's to ask this, who does it come to or who get in and who are excluded? Now, I only bring this up because it's here in the text and it's a point that Matthew is working very hard to make. And Matthew wants us to see that there is an upside downness to the kingdom, that in many ways it defines our natural inclinations and our cultural assumptions. And that's why so many people miss it. Now, just think about this. Because we choose these things on purpose, I hope you know. But if you look at your call to worship in your worship folder, you'll see it's this beautiful passage from Isaiah 9, talking about the coming of one who would be wonderful counselor, almighty father, you know, everlasting father, prince of peace, that would rule and of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. And he'll sit on David's throne and he'll rule over the nations with an iron rod. And so you can begin to imagine the expectation that people had of what that person would look like and what his kingship would, how you would experience it. And then you come to Mark 15 and the one who claims to be the king, the son of David, who comes in fulfillment of Isaiah 9, has not kicked Rome out. He's not ruling over the nations. He's hanging on a cross, suffering, bleeding, thirsty, dying for the sins of mankind. And you just begin to say, how in the world did we get from this to this? Unless there's something very upside down about the way the whole thing plays out. You see? And there's an upside downness that really is hard to make sense of unless you, you really allow how the scripture reveals these things to come to bear upon your understanding. You see, we're going to see next week in the Beatitudes the same thing. In the Beatitudes, it's not the most powerful and the rich and the wise and the well thought of that find themselves in the kingdom. It is the poor in spirit and those who mourn, the weak, the last, and the least. Jesus says over and over again, <clears throat> the first, can you finish it? What happens to the first in the kingdom? They shall be last. And the last shall be first. He says things like those who are the greatest are those who are the servants. So in everything he does, he's kind of flipping things upside down. And for Matthew, this is a very important point, because I want you to see up at the beginning of this passage in verses 12 through 15, that for Matthew, Matthew finds fulfillment in Jesus's move to Capernaum from Nazareth, from Isaiah 9. And so we have to ask the question, what is the theological significance for Matthew of Jesus fulfilling Isaiah chapter 9 in moving from Nazareth to Capernaum? Because really, is it really, you know, is that really that significant? Okay, great. He wasn't in Nazareth anymore. Now he's in Capernaum. And Matthew just sees this as a huge, this huge, you know, theologically significant event that, that fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah 9. And if you're like me, you read Isaiah 9, I have no idea. The connection that he's trying to make. And so we've got to look at that a little more closely. Okay, so let's, let's just take verses 12 through 15 and let's just talk for one, you know, one or, one or two minutes about this. And I just want you to see that in the original context of Isaiah 9, and if you want to look at your call to worship, you can. 
But in the original context in Isaiah 9, the north was a way of referring to the most sinful and the most corrupt part of the nation of Israel. So the north, Israel at this time was split into north and south. I mean, very clearly, there was the northern part, which was Galilee, and the southern part, which was Judea. And most of, you know, most of the really important spiritual stuff that happened happened down here. And Galilee was just kind of this out-of-the-way place in the north. And, and so it would have been seen, or it would have been a way of referring to the most sinful, the most outside, the most corrupt part of the nation of Israel. And so when Jesus shows up on the scene, you remember they come to Nathaniel and say, we found the Messiah, he's from Nazareth. And what does, Na- what does Nathaniel say? How could anything good come from there? Galilee in the north was the hotbed of the zealot activity. It was always a big pain in the rear for those who tried to govern it because the people were lawless and less refined uh, than the south. It's even referred to here in verse 15, if you look, as Galilee of the Gentiles because it was close to 50% Gentile population. So the people from the south where the capital and the temple were would have looked with great contempt at those from the north. They would have, were, they would have seen... They would have been seen to some degree as being outcast or subpar or not nearly as spiritual or not possessing the social and the religious pedigree uh, of those of the south. In other words, Galilee would have been the least likely place for Messiah to set up shop. It was too out of the way. It was too peripheral, too insignificant, too far removed from all the really important people and all the really important stuff that was happening in Jerusalem. And yet Matthew says that Jesus left Nazareth and began to live in Capernaum, which would have been on the the northwest coast of the Sea of Galilee. And this is something that's going to play itself out over and over again throughout his ministry. As people come to him and try to slot him into their little theological categories, he never really meets their expectations. He's just a little, he's too different. His teachings are too radical. The kingdom he talks about is just Two, upside down. There's an upside downness to it. It doesn't come to the people it should. It doesn't meet cultural expectations the way that it should. It's just completely upside down. And so because of that, then we have to talk about the second point, which is that the only way you enter into it then is through the process of repentance. Because you see, here's the, here's the mistake we make. We make the mistake that the kingdom is, is so upside down. The kingdom that is coming in Jesus is so Contrary to our normal experience, the values in the mission of Jesus are so, that are expressed in the phrase kingdom of heaven are so opposed to our own cultural values that entering into it requires a radical change, a change of thinking, a change of lifestyle, a change of heart in the deep places of our lives. And the word for this is that word there in verse 17, repent, repent. And if you read the scriptures, whenever the kingdom is announced, whenever there's the announcement of the coming kingdom, there's always a call, always a call to repentance because it's a whole new reality. It's an upside down reality that is coming that you can't just be an add on to your life because it is so incongruous with everything else. There has to be a renovation of heart and mind and life that is so profound. Paul says it's a new creation Everything old has gone away and the new has come. So here's my, here's my deal with this. And I, I, I do this every now and then. I, I will, I'll read something to Ashley and I say, should I say this? Because I, I get nervous about things like this. But I just want to say to you, and I hope you'll hear me, 
um, because it might sound harsh and it might be hard, but the Christianity that so many people in America have come to embrace does not threaten all the other allegiances of their lives. I mean, you can be a Christian and love money and pursue wealth and nobody would, would think anything of it. They probably would commend you for it, even though the Bible clearly warns that you can't serve both God and money. I mean, you can, you can call yourself a Christian and make an idol out of family, and people will smile at you and call you a good family man. Or you can make an idol out of your citizenship, and people will call you patriotic. And really, in many ways, these are things that are expected of you if you're going to be a quote-unquote good Christian, but nobody ever warns about their danger and about how they can divide your loyalties. And unfortunately, when you come to the Gospels, Jesus has a lot to say about these issues. But in Jesus, the kingdom of God is coming And it makes a claim on every aspect of our lives. It demands our total allegiance. You have to be converted to it. You have to repent to enter into it. And what I love about this passage, I just absolutely love that Matthew gives us examples of what this looks like in the stories of the the conversions or the call of Simon and Andrew and James and John from Jesus to follow him. In verses 18 through 22, as we kind of draw to a close, you see... The stories of the disciples and their coming to Jesus to follow him, a pattern emerges. A a pattern emerges of those who would follow after Jesus that they have to leave their lives behind to follow him and be his disciples. They have to repent. They have to change. They have to depart. So in verse 20, for example, verse 19 and 20, Jesus comes to Andrew and his brother Simon, and he says, follow me. And then Matthew reports in verse 20, immediately They left their nets and followed him. Now, what's fascinating is is that the Greek word for nets there in verse 20 is plural and it's nonspecific. And so we are really meant to read it and see that in walking away from their nets, they were walking away from their whole way of life. I mean, take these categories for just a minute. Take the categories of time, money, your talents or your gifts, and your relationships. Those four things. Time, money, what you're gifted at, and your relationships. I mean, how do you spend your time? How do you spend your, how do you use your money? How do you use your gifts? How do you manage your relationships? I mean, if you're a Christian, it will look completely different than a non-Christian. I mean, let me talk, you know, if you're not, if you're here and you're not a Christian, or you're thinking about what it means to become a Christian, if you're not a Christian, you're under no obligation other than to look out for yourself. And so in many ways, you're going to spend your money for the most part, for the most part. You're going to spend your money on yourself. Um, You're going to spend your time selfishly. You're going to use your gifts selfishly. You're going to manage your relationships selfishly. You'll pick friends who like you and who who are easy to be friends with. But everything you do will have a selfish orientation. But if you're a Christian, here's what this means. If you're a Christian, there's a whole new agenda. The kingdom of God comes with a brand new set of priorities and values. And the call to repent is to bring the whole of our lives the whole of our lives into alignment with the new agenda that has come in Jesus. The kingdom agenda, to, to, the call to worship God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And so if this is true, then the call to repent means to bring all of our lives into alignment, to find the barriers to worship and love in our lives and to remove them, to walk away from all of the ways that we are using our time and our treasures and our talents and our relationships selfishly to leave our nets behind and to follow Jesus and to learn what it looks like 
to be a steward of those things, to love him, to serve other people. That's repentance. They left their nets behind to follow him. But then look further in verse 21 and 22. And going from there, he saw two brothers, James and John, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called to them, follow me. And immediately they left the boat. Look at this. And their father and followed him. And so not only did they leave their nets, but they left their father too. And it's significant because they were breaking the strongest family tie that the people knew at this time. Matthew is trying to show us that allegiance to Jesus is stronger. It has to be stronger than any earthly attachment, even family. And in fact, later Jesus will say in language that sounds very harsh, if anyone does not hate his father and his mother, his wife and his children, he cannot be my disciple. I know that doesn't make sense to us, but if you could, if you could go to a Muslim country and watch teenagers come to faith in Jesus Christ and have to go home and tell their parents that they're no longer Muslim, they're now Christian, and to be beaten, sometimes killed, and thrown on the streets. It would start to make sense. And I got to think, you know, really, there's a parallel in that to the pressure that my family puts on me at Christmas time to, to love them and worship them and go, you know, go after their agenda rather than the agenda of my king. I mean, every loyalty has to be smashed in order for us to be completely, entirely in allegiance to Jesus and his kingdom. And so Miroslav Volf, who's a Croatian pastor and theologian, he says at the very core of Christian identity lies an all-encompassing change of loyalty from a given culture with its gods to the God of all cultures. A response to a call from God that entails the rearrangement of a whole network of allegiances as the call of Jesus' first disciples illustrate, the nets, their economy, and the father, the family, must be left behind. Departure is part and parcel of Christian identity. There has to be a leaving. There has to be, there has to be a movement of repentance, and you see it over and over. I mean, it is all over the place in the Scripture. God comes to Abraham at the very beginning of Genesis, and he says, Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. And I'm going to bless you, but you have to leave your father's house and you have to come with me on a journey to the land that I will show you. You have to leave. You have to leave it behind. You have to depart. You have to repent from one way. You have to get out from your father's house and from the land where your father lives and you have to come after me so I can teach you a different way of living. Even Jesus to the rich young ruler who comes to him and says, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus says, do this and this and this and this. And he says, great, I've done all that stuff. And then Jesus says, one more thing. Go and sell all of your possessions and give them to the poor and then come and follow me. What's he calling him to? I mean, there has to be a life of repentance. There has to be a change. There has to be a departure that happens. And then I thought of the story, which is very appropriate, of the explorer Hernando Cortez, who came from... Actually, he was docked somewhere in the Caribbean and then came to Mexico with his, with his guys. And they had 11 ships. And once he gathered all of his soldiers on the shore uh, and they were going in to conquer, you know, Mexico. Um, they were at Veracruz and they were going to, I think it was Mexico. They were going in to conquer the land. And, and as they were standing on the shore, gathering together, getting ready to go do battle against, you know, whoever might be in there. They turn around and they see that the ships they've arrived on are on fire. And they start to panic. And what's going on? And then Cortez stands up and says, I've burned the ships because we're not going back. 
mean, a decisive break. There's no, we are past the point of return. You know, there is no going back to the life we once knew. We only have one choice, and that is to move forward into the mission uh, that we've come here to accomplish. And I'm telling you, in many ways, that's exactly what's being portrayed for us here. That, that what we're seeing in the way that James and John and Peter and Andrew come to Jesus is there is a decisive break. They leave it behind. There's this radical repentance of life that moves them out of the, all what they've always known into a new life of following after Jesus as his disciples. You cannot, Jesus says you have to be born again or else you cannot see the kingdom of God. It's like re-entering the womb and starting all over. There has to be a decisive break, this radical repentance. Now, I feel like I need to apply this for us, and so I'm going to do the best I can. Um, but I want you to look and see how can we begin to apply this passage then in just a very small way. Uh, what are the implications for us? I'm going to take two minutes to do this uh, for the kingdom of God coming to earth. And I just want you to see this little phrase in verse 19 where Jesus calls Simon and Andrew who are casting their nets. They were fishermen, and he said to them, come and follow me. And I will make you fishers of men. Now, discipleship isn't optional. These guys aren't the exception to the rule or some special case. By definition, being a Christian means leaving your life behind and following Jesus to be his disciples because he has work for you to do. Like these guys, he wants to make you a fisher of men. And isn't that a great metaphor? Any fishermen here? It's hard for me because fishing, and, and I need help, please, please, somebody, somebody, a man needs to come alongside of me and help, because fishing for me is like the fish farms in, the, in North Carolina where, you know, you throw the thing in and it's like five seconds and then you've got an, a six-pound bass or six-pound trout that costs $95 for you to have them. Anybody done that? You know what I'm saying? So the metaphor is lost on me to some degree. But, you know, I, it's not that. It's more like fly fishing the back fork of the Elk River in West Virginia or something like that. But, he, you know, he wants to make us fishers of men. And so I just three, – three applications very quickly for what this means. First, first I think what it means is, is that you and I are the bait. If he's going to make us fisher of men, fishers of men, then it means that we are the bait, that we must embody the truth of the gospel, that there are, va- there, are, there are powerful cultural forces that have trained us in a certain way of living. And if we're going to be faithful witnesses to the kingdom, we're going to have to unlearn that way of living and learn a whole new way of living. You know, if we're going to be faithful witnesses to the kingdom, we have to learn to live just the opposite of the way we normally live, not privately, but sharing our hurts and even our sins with one another so that we can help one another. You know, not in self-reliance, but asking one another for help. And so in many ways, the idea of a community group is absolutely frightening, but that's why it's so important, because we have to learn a different way of life, because we're the bait. And it's as we experience eternal life that we can share it with other people. But a second application, second application is this, that we have to model Jesus if we're going to be fishers of men in his preaching and teaching ministry. And just a couple of thoughts about this. First, that preaching, that word there means to proclaim publicly. It's a political word. We think of preaching as something that happens in here, right, on Sundays. But in a biblical sense, it's announcing the gospel of the kingdom in the public square. And isn't it fun? I just had fun thinking about how to begin to do that. I mean, what would it be like for us to be a church that wrote letters to the editor that were kind but forthright? Postings on Facebook, holding services in parks downtown, announcing the kingdom come to our city publicly. Being a people who learn to preach the kingdom. And the same goes for teaching. 
teaching our children, teaching one another, teaching our neighbors who need to know the reality of the gospel. And so how can we how can we become faithful fishers of men? We have to become committed and skilled at sharing the gospel with people and with our words. And I want to ask you two questions. Is that your goal? And if so, where do you need to repent? To become committed and skilled at that. But then one last thing. Not only are we the bait, so we have to embody the reality of the gospel. Not only do we have to share it in word with our words, teaching and preaching, but there's a work of restoration that has to happen too. It's interesting. Just as Jesus healed, we have to heal too. And the word there for healing is the word therapeuo, which should sound familiar. And it means to bring back to health and to make whole. And so we believe that Jesus can and does heal people who are sick and who have cancer. We believe that. But the work goes way beyond that. To see people spiritually healthy, emotionally and psychologically healthy, which is why we have a counselor who works out of our offices. To be a church where people with broken marriages can find healing. To see our relationships with one another healed. So, again, I ask you, how can we be faithful fishers of men We have to become committed and skilled at sharing the gospel with people through our works of mercy and compassion. And again, two questions. Is that your goal? And where do you need to repent? See, the kingdom of God is coming. It's coming. It's coming. It's an upside-down kingdom, but it's coming. But as it comes, it demands our complete allegiance. And so we need to pray that the Spirit would come. And grant us the grace of repentance. And so would you pray with me just that this morning? Let's pray together as we, as we come. Lord Jesus Christ, you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You are the one who has come to reveal to us eternal life and to give it to us if we would but believe and repent. And so I pray that you would help us by giving us your spirit and and that the spirit would come and that he would grace us with the gifts of faith and repentance, that we would be a people willingly repenting of our sins, turning away from all of the ways that we have used our time and our talent and our our money and our relationships selfishly to pursue our own agenda, and rather that we be a people who take up the agenda of the kingdom to love you with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength and to love our neighbors as ourselves. So that you might be glorified in us. But Father, grant us wisdom. Grant us eyes to see what that even looks like. And then grant us hearts that are courageous and bold. To do hard things. To leave the way of life we've always known. To follow after you despite the cost. Even though it means we follow you in taking up our own cross. We follow you to our own death. Jesus, fill our hearts and our minds with the reality of your hanging on a cross, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You did that in love for us. And if you did that in love for us, is there anything that you could ask of us that we would not willingly do? Is there anything that you could ask that we would not willingly give in love for you and for the sake of those that we love too? And so we pray you come and do this in us and that you may gain great glory for yourself. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please pray for Jonathan and um, for the team of people who went with him to Uganda. He is in Uganda for the next 10 days um, doing a mission trip that we've sponsored as a church. So please keep them in prayer. When he gets back, we're going to get him up here and, and let him talk to you about that. But pray for them. Allison Bowers with him and a couple of other people from our city. We're really excited about what they're doing there. So keep them in your prayers. Okay. Now, as you contemplate and as I contemplate the radical nature of Jesus' call to repentance... 
uh, hear the word of the benediction and know that when he call, when Jesus calls you away from your life, the life that you've always known, to follow him, as scary as it may sound, he's not calling you away to make you miserable. He's calling you away to teach you eternal life. The life that you were made for. The life lived in the blessing and the favor of God. So if your faith is in Jesus, then even as you contemplate the call to repentance... Hear the Father's heart from you. He's calling you to the life you've been made for. And he promises that as you come, that he will be there to bless you. So I raise my hands over you to bless you, even as the Father promises. And so receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.